Let's pray before we open the Word of God this morning. Great God of revelation, we come to Your Word to sit under it, to be taught by it, to understand it. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word, we will be reading 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11. Uh, there's a couple of other scriptures printed here, but we will use those as we go on. But uh, we will be reading 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11. Hear now the word of God. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance or an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Titled this uh, study of scripture this morning. God's Word in 3D. We are a society of people who want it fast and short and to the point whether it's necessarily true or not. Uh, Fortunately, God gives us the truth in propositional form that we can trust. And Peter, the Apostle, has given us in the second epistle that bears his authorship a clear teaching of what we need to understand that truth and to grow in that truth to strengthen our relationship both with God and with one another. A little bit of introduction. I know it's been some time since Pastor uh, preached through Second Peter, First and Second Peter. As uh, I looked, at, it was actually in November of 2018 uh, that we last 
looked at Second Peter as a congregation in the first chapter. I believe that's right. Uh, so I'm going to spend a couple of minutes here uh, in a brief introduction to Second Peter because Second Peter is a little bit different uh, from the other epistles in that it was specifically dealing with three different things. Encouragement, as it did his first epistle, but also and primarily with heresy and of a specific type of heresy called Gnosticism, and also with our calling and assurance. Fewer commentaries have been written about Second Peter and on Second Peter uh, than any other book in the New Testament, except for maybe Jude. So, and uh, Jude and Second Peter are very much alike, which is, is interesting in itself. Uh, of the 66 books in the New and Old Testament canon that we have as our Bible, uh, a few left out in the original compilation or canon, which is from the Greek word canon, <laughs> which means measuring rod. That's easy, right? Uh, which is a measuring rod. And this canon, uh, incidentally, was developed because a need in the church arose because a fellow by the name of Marcion, who was a heretic, uh, who did not like the God of the Old Testament, decided to do a little cutting and pasting on what the church had received as scripture. And so he pretty much threw out all of the Old Testament, anything in the New Testament that referred to the God of the Old Testament, and pretty much everything else in the New Testament that he didn't like, which was a lot. So... Uh, it, interestingly enough, we have a bunch of books that uh, were left out of the canon that the church said, we need to do something about this heretic, and we need to make sure everyone knows what the New Testament and the Old Testament, the Bible, as it were, looks like. And because uh, most people couldn't read and write, and because the expense of making copies and having someone be able to read those copies, the scriptures were passed around to the churches and, and for instance, if, if say, uh, Romans had been brought to Trinity Reformed Church, uh, maybe Kelly would uh, memorize the first chapter and maybe Riley would, would memorize the second chapter and Stephen would memorize the third chapter and so forth and that's how the church would retain what was in the book of Romans well this went on there were copies many copies were made of the New Testament but the church had not really sat down and said this is comprises the apostles doctrine and except for the Old Testament of course which was was written um, so Marcion was basically called a heretic and in 175, uh, his, uh, the response of the church uh, was to say, these are the books uh, we are going to include in uh, what we believe is accurate for Scripture, for the New Testament, essentially. Notice I say the church received. It did not create the New Testament. It did not... Uh, make some sort of, of uh, effort to say, because we have said this is God's word, it is God's word. There was no authority vested, uh, as the Roman Catholic Church would claim, in the church. The church received this as the apostles' doctrine, the prophets uh, in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. So the church received rather than created this canon of scripture. Some books that were not uh, 
included in this to begin with. One of them was Second Peter, and there was various reasons for that, uh, as well as the book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation, uh, and uh, some left out Jude. So, so there were several that were not originally, but within a few years, those were also included. Some that were considered but did not make it into the canon were some you may have heard of in the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, which are called the Shepherd of Hermes, um, the Didache, you've probably heard of the Didache, and First Clement. Fortunately, most of the people who had written these were still alive at the time and said, we know this isn't scripture. So they were able to validate and and say, even though they would agree with scripture and they were a faithful representation of what was in scripture, they knew and said these are not scripture and they were not included in the canon. Uh, most others that were left out, uh, most of the rest were works of the Gnostic heretics. And you've probably heard of some of these recently because there's been a movement lately to uh, try to put these back in the New Testament. I think particularly the Gospel of Thomas uh, and several others who are known to be second century uh, Gnostic uh writings. The Gnostics basically would write, we'll get into who they were, but essentially write these treatises who would then uh, attach the name of an apostle to so that they would be accepted. Remember, we didn't have, everybody didn't have their their iPads and their uh, Kindles and, and their uh, copies of Gutenberg's Bibles, right, at this point in history. And so it was easier for them to try to slip these uh, errant documents into the church. So the criteria that was set down for accepting this writings were very simple. Were the writings received originally by the early church? Number one, did the church receive them earlier? That that was the first criteria. Second was was the authorship apostolic. Now, that wasn't necessarily meaning that an apostle wrote it, but was the doctrine apostolic, and was it uh, given authority by the apostles? For instance, Luke was not an apostle, Mark was not an apostle, yet Mark wrote a gospel, primarily, we believe, by Peter's... Uh, help with his with his uh, uh, background and, and from his point of view. And uh, Luke obviously traveled with who? The Apostle Paul. Uh, Luke was actually not even a Jew. Well, he was actually probably a converted Jew, but he was Greek originally. And he then had a different viewpoint, but yet his view was primarily that of Paul. And so Luke and Mark's, Luke's gospel in the book of Acts, and then the gospel of Mark are apostolic, but they're not written by an apostle. apostle. But this is what's meant by apostolic authority or apostolic authorship. And then are the writings consistent? Are they consistent with everything else in Scripture? Those are the three criteria. Very simple to the point, uh, but very necessary. And it was obvious that many, many of these writings, some think up to 3,000 of these Gnostic writings at one point existed, that if you've ever read any of them, they're just ridiculous. I mean, they're, they're silly. They're, 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 so, they're so bad, they're, they're almost laughable if they weren't being trying to be passed off as scripture. Um, and, and so this is the kind of thing Peter was looking at, at, at going up against in, in his writing of Second Peter. Interestingly enough, in this, in this book, he calls himself Simeon Peter rather than Simon Peter. This is one of the reasons why 
early on some thought that maybe it wasn't a, a good idea to put it in the canon because Peter normally was referred to as Simon Peter. But Simeon Peter is a common form uh, in the Aramaic uh, that is the uh, equivalent of Simon. And it, more than likely, uh, Peter uh, wrote this book much, much later. We know he wrote it near the end of his life. So the stylistic differences we see in the Greek in that second epistle and these are things that Pastor already went over, but I'm just refreshing your memory here. Uh, the, the stylistic differences in the Greek uh, were another thing. But as you know, as a person ages and change, they, their writings change. I, I look back on some things I'd written when I was 20, 25 years old, and I wouldn't have been able to tell they were mine if somebody had just said, here, read this and tell me who wrote it. If I hadn't known that I'd written it, the style is different, the vocabulary is different, much has changed. So I'm not uh, surprised that, and, and uh, it's kind of uh, gone out of style, if you will, to simply use Greek style as being uh, a end-all and be-all for an authorship. And then there's this lovely thing called Hypox legomena. Now, don't forget that because you'll use that all the time. Right? Again, uh, this is not new. Pastors talked about this. Hypox legomena is a term that refers to words found only in one place. And this was one of those things that came up in 19th century liberalism that got made into a criteria, essentially, for defining authorship of a particular person's writing. So if they used this word and it was used nowhere else, uh, then it couldn't have been them using it because they didn't use it anywhere else. Well, it doesn't take long to think through that one, right? So... Then the other thing is the subject matter is so different from 1 Peter that people are going, is is this really the same guy writing this? But as you know, uh, one person can write on two completely diverse subjects at different times in different places, and we don't suspect them of, of forgery or something else simply because they've written on a different subject. Um, again uh, so for these reasons that were pretty weak uh, were set aside and said that this it should be in the canon so the Gnostic heresy what what is the Gnostic heresy and and why did Peter care and why should we care about it well we should care obviously because it's in the scripture number one uh, and number two, it keeps resurfacing over and over and over again like most heresies do. We don't have any new heresies that can really be called new today. So the occasion for this writing of Second Peter, this Gnostic heresy that was happening, comes from a word... Gnosis, which simply means knowledge. And I want you to remember that because as we go through Peter, it's interesting. Peter overuses the word gnosis in Second Peter, and I think he does it deliberately uh, in light of, of who he's dealing with uh, as his adversaries here. The biggest heretical threat in the first 200 years, probably, of the church was Gnosticism. Again, 3,000 documents, or nearly 3,000 documents, believed to have been written by the Gnostics. That's a lot. And you know that the church had to deal with a huge problem in that 
in the beginning. And so, what exactly is Gnosticism? Well, think about this for a minute because you're familiar with it. It's a mixture, essentially, of Greek philosophy, of Oriental dualism, and some Christianity. And you've seen this today in what's called the New Age movements, in westernized Hinduism, in a whole ton of cults that we've seen in our day. Uh, everything from children of God to, to uh, uh, the, the David Koresh's uh, Branch Davidian cult had aspects of Gnosticism built into it. We see it all the time in common philosophical discussion on the street and in entertainment. It's consistent and it's a constant aggravation to the church and that's why Peter wrote about it. Very, very close to our New Age teachings today. Again, like I said, people are wanting to put these, these Gnostic writings back, put them into the New Testament. So that's an a introduction there. God's Word in 3D, I, I, I've got three different D's here, if you will. Uh, divergence or heresy, doctrine, and diligence. These are the three things that Peter talks about in depth in this epistle. In 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, if uh, you want to turn to your uh, sheet there, that's one of the, the um, copies of, that I've written out on the second page there. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So we've been using that word heresy or divergence through this introduction this morning. And Peter gives us a little more depth of insight into it. What does the word heresy mean? Where does it come from? Where does this, where does this word heresy come from? We're, we all have a reaction, I think, when we... Uh, hear that word heresy. What comes to your mind when you first hear the word heresy? It's usually something to do with, in our culture, heresy is probably referred to as a good thing because it makes you different than everybody else because it's divergent, it's separate, it's, it's your own thing. And guess what? That's what it means. It means that it's diverging from a standard teaching. It means a choice that is separated from the norm. It's a part of, it is an act of taking or capturing or storming a city. It's, it's doing it yourself. Like the old uh, Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. That, that's heresy. That's what it is. It's, it's what Judges begins with, and they all did what was right in their own eyes. That's heresy. That's what it is. That's why Peter is so serious about it in this passage. So we have this divergence or heresy, and the actual word for heresy is, get this, heresy. From the Greek. Yeah. 
I know, it's kind of like canon. From the Greek, it's the same word. It's a transliteration. Um, it's seldom used, but Peter uses it uh, here. It's one of those words that Peter uses. And more often, we see the reference to it. Now, think about this when you think about heresy or heretical teaching. You don't usually hear someone call it heresy. You don't usually see it referred to as heresy in either the Old or New Testaments. It's usually referred to in a literary form of some kind. It's usually referred to as darkness rather than light, or as falsehood rather than truth, or as error, or as... You get the, you get the idea. Okay? That's what we see in, the, in this first, first verse that, that Peter gives us in chapter 3. That false prophets, false prophets rose who were teaching. Why were they false prophets? Because they were teaching heresy. There will be among you. This isn't going to stop. There are going to be constant attacks. And they will bring in heresies that are destructive. In other words, heresy isn't just a matter of opinion. If you ever wonder what caused the during the Middle Ages, why the Catholic Church and even the Protestant Church in some instances uh, had torture and, and the Inquisition and all of those horrible things, it was because of heresy or perceived heresy. It was serious. We don't take it serious. They took it serious. It, it was a health hazard to your spiritual health. It wasn't simply that they really were mean people and they felt like being mean people. They were they were concerned about the souls of people. You know, can using the wrong methods of obviously we would not condone that and neither does scripture but you can understand their passion and why they would do that it wasn't simply uh, something that they felt like doing okay so he says it even goes so far as denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves destruction God will judge and judge swiftly heretical teaching and the heretic himself. And many will follow their sensuality because what they teach is so appealing. The the things that the Gnostics taught were appealing. The things that, that Gnostic teaching today has is so appealing because it does not depend upon God and upon truth. It depends on you and your choices and your liberties, if you will, that are taken in the name of individualism and your free will. That you have the, quote, right. How many times a week you hear, it's a right? Really, is it? Okay. Let's, let's look through, through this idea of Truth and error. Truth is not simply what you agree to in your own mind, but there is no support for outside of yourself. In other words, there's no such thing as my truth that is no one else's. If you think about that, it's ridiculous. Something that Francis Schaeffer alluded to when he referred to true truth. He had to, because this had become so prevalent, truth was so relative, he actually had to define what truth was with truth. True truth. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. What does blasphemed mean? What? Insulted. It means it will be degraded. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Again, notice that he's not saying heretical words. He's using that that literary term false. It's false words. It's not true words. It's false words. 
their condemnation from long ago is not idle and it will be punished. That's why we have have statements in the New Testament that says things like we need to be careful about who teaches. We have to be careful about how we read scripture. We have to be careful about speaking the truth of God accurately. So this divergence from the truth was on Peter's mind. Here we see that people of God are being taught, uh, interestingly enough, I found the word uh, in an old Geneva translation used the term merchandising. It said, they are making merchandise out of you by teaching these things. That's Talk about degrading. Seriously. And the Greek word is not merchandise. Okay? It's the word where we get emporium from. Interesting, huh? So Peter's dealing with false doctrine and those who would propagate it in the church. He's not telling these guys, you need to stop preaching that out in the in the public square. He's concerned about the people of God. He's concerned that the word of God being preached to the people of God is being merchandised, making them merchandise because of falsehood. And, and that is something that has to be corrected. And so Peter does that. And our second point, doctrine. What do you think of when you use the word doctrine? It's one of those words like heresy. We have a, a, an immediate reaction to it. Usually today it's a negative reaction. Oh, we don't want to be indoctrinated. We don't want to be taught doctrine. That sounds very formal and dry and, and something I don't want to deal with. Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Exactly. Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche. Yes. Nihilism that ends up being the uh, the the end of yeah yes it means teaching yeah. literally it means that which is taught according to a standard canon standard canon okay. And Peter is giving us doctrine and telling us the truth in opposition to heresy or diversion away from the truth. Doctrine requires two things. It requires that that's being taught, the truth, and it also requires someone that is receiving that. Notice how that is contiguous with this idea of the canon that we did, we talked about earlier, that the church received this work of works coming from God to the church as being doctrinal. Peter begins by calling himself a slave. What does it say there? Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The actual word there is doulos, which is slave. It, it's kind of softened in most translations to servant, but uh, we look, we kind of think about servant and slave in two different ways. Um, you can have two kinds of servants. You can have people who are serving because they have no choice, which really makes them slaves, right? Or you can have servants who are what we call indentured servant, servants. They're serving for some particular reason, like they're in debt or something like that, and there's a, a, a parameters put upon their servitude. Peter is saying, I am a slave to Christ. Those who have obtained, and then, then he's, he's telling us who, it's, who he's talking to. Now remember, these 
knowledge brokers, if you will, these special people that were the Gnostics, they had a, a term of a person who was all in the know. They had, they had touched the divine. They were in touch with the cosmos or whatever. And they were, they were the, 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 the Maharashi, if you will, right? They were what was called the Gnosticoi. These were the people who knew, knew all the tricks, right? And Peter, in opposition to that, is saying, I'm writing this to those who have t- obtained a faith equal in standing with ours. With ours? Who's he talking about? Who is ours? He just called it. He just said he's a he's a slave and an apostle of Christ. He's talking about the apostle. He's saying you have received obtained a faith of equal standing before God with ours. We're not claiming some special mystical power. We're not claiming some divergent special knowledge that you can only get by being an apostle. We are representing God and we are on equal standing before God because of Christ in Christ. So he's knocking down this idea that there is this separation, these this different levels of knowing. Okay, now what he's not saying is there aren't those who know more and who know less about what's being taught. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, standing before God in Christ Jesus, being justified by Christ in faith, by the grace of God, we're standing the same. That's not what the Gnostics were saying. There was this different levels of who you could be. And and that's what they were teaching. And then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then he says something very unusual here. He says, in the knowledge of God, in the gnosis of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that provide that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, through the gnosis of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Notice how he's using that word knowledge over and over and over again. It's like he's hammering away at this idea of the Gnostics. He he is the slave of Christ. Peter is on the same justified level as the people that he's speaking with. He is the, an apostle of Christ having the authority to speak in God's name and that standing in Christ's righteousness, they're the same, equally. No special, no secret knowledge. The greeting of grace and peace in God's, in the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus, it is God who is granted. Okay? Another thing. It's not this, this special ceremony that you have to go through to reach these different levels. It is God who has granted to all believers this faith. Okay? In which we stand. How do we know that? We know that Peter tells us that, but we also know that through another place in Scripture. Any, any just off the top of your head where, where that might be? Something Paul wrote. It's a good hint, right? He only wrote like over half of the New Testament. So, uh, Ephesians. If you would turn to Ephesians and look at the second chapter. Ephesians Two, four through nine. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's pretty clear. It's just saying in different words the same thing that Peter is saying here. We stand before God by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he's given us that knowledge in the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Notice how this list of qualities that we are looking at in this first section Keep in mind that this long chain that we're going to look at of qualities has something very special uh, in reference to what Paul wrote about the fruit of the Spirit. Now listen to this. 2 Peter 11, 1, or I'm sorry, 1 uh, verse uh, 4, by which he is granted to us his great, great Precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, because God has loved you first and given you this gift of faith and grace, make every effort to supplement your faith, not replace your faith, but supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with affection or I'm sorry, and, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Sounds very much like Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. And then he goes on, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So he calls on us to make our calling and election sure. What that doesn't mean, all right, is probably what, when you first read it, you think it means. That doesn't mean that we are responsible for maintaining our election in Christ. It does not mean that we are responsible for maintaining our faith that was given to us by the grace of God, because he loved us. Okay, What that does mean is that we reaffirm, not to God. We, we're, we're not saying here, uh, God, remember, I'm, I, uh, I'm elect. Uh, remember, God, you, you called me. Don't forget. It's not reassuring God, it's reassuring us. The assurance that comes in knowing that God has elected you in Christ Jesus and has called you, as we see in Romans 8 and Romans 9, because he has called you, he keeps you. But sometimes we forget that. It's not making our calling and election sure because God's going to forget us. It's reminding us. And assuring us by these, by these, and we'll call them works. 
as we saw in Ephesians 2, what does that 10th verse tell us? That we were saved by grace through faith for good works, that we should walk in them. This is walking in them. Peter's not saying anything different than Paul. He's saying, walk in these works. They will assure you. They will keep you cognizant of the fact that God called you and elected you in Christ Jesus. And so doctrine matters. Doctrine is the only way we know the things we know about God that can save us. We know God exists and we know God is all powerful. We know those things because he has revealed himself in nature, but only through his revelation to us in scripture Through the Apostles' Doctrine, do we know what is necessary for our salvation and to be assured of that salvation? Even the Reformers had an argument about whether assurance should be a necessary part of the Gospel. We don't think about that today too much, but they actually were convinced, many of them, including Luther and Calvin, that assurance should be a part of the gospel. That if you did not have assurance of your faith in Christ and your election and calling in Christ, that you should question your salvation. Now, we would never say that to anybody today, but they did. Assurance was that important to them, and it was that important to Peter. So doctrine is important as we battle against heresy and as we battle for our assurance and as we battle to know and to be strengthened in grace and in our faith. That's why we call when we come together and and participate in worship and as we hear the word and as we partake in the sacraments, We call those means of grace. They're means of grace whereby we are strengthened by God through his word and sacrament in grace. And lastly, diligence. Peter used the term making every effort. He uses that term quite often for us to make every effort. He says in 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18, Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And almost as a side note, Peter says here, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Again, that's a direct reference to the Gnostics and their teachings because they wanted to be known as apostolic. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Notice it doesn't say lose your justification it doesn't say lose your salvation he starts out by calling them what beloved the beloved in Christ and he says that you don't lose your own stability but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and this doxology now to him be the glory both now and and to the day of eternity. And he, and he concludes, as all of the Jews would, uh, with the Amen. And this diligence here, growing in the grace and knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, is ultimately what we do any time we partake of the means of grace and in worship, because it is this diligence that it's as if we were in 
I think Zach's used this example as well. We knew at the end of World War II in 1944 on June the 6th, my father went ashore on Utah Beach. They knew the war was virtually won at that point. It was a done deal. There, there was no way the Nazis were going to come back from it, right? So why didn't they just say, oh, okay, well, they're, they'll kind of fade out after a while. We won't mess with it anymore. There was still stuff to do. Okay, why, when you're saved, do you not just, you know, if you're a uh, immersion only, uh, uh, I always say, if you're immersion only uh, 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 baptizer, uh, <laughs> uh, why don't they just hold you under? I mean, you know, one, two, three, and just hold you under, and you're done. You know, on your way to heaven, right? Why? Why not? Why? There's stuff to do. We're called to good works. We're called to be what? What? We're called to be salt and light. And in a sense, and don't take this wrong, in a sense, we are apostles. Okay? Little a. (laughs) Apostles. We are messengers carrying the news of the gospel to the world. That and the good works that we are to walk in, glorifying God between now and the time we are glorified in Christ in the end. Be what? Diligent. Be diligent as you work out your salvation, your calling and election. Make it sure. Work it out. Know in your own mind. Continue in your Frogging along those days when it seems impossible. God, through the Holy Spirit, is strengthening you through the means of grace to complete and persevere. Amen.